Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president and professor of Old Testament here at RTS Washington. And I'm joined today by Dr. Grace Utanto, professor of systematic theology, Dr. Paul Jean, senior pastor at New City Presbyterian Church and instructor in New Testament here at RTS Washington. Also, Tommy Keene, our academic dean and professor of New Testament, and Dr. Peter Lee, our dean of students and professor of Old Testament. And we are continuing on in our series discussing the Apostles' Creed. And uh, we were actually just chatting right before this started up, uh, the, the, the sort of ambiguity about the origins of the Apostles' Creed. Some religious traditions obviously have you know, very sort of clear and distinct historical tradition about where the creed comes from, and yet there's actually very little that we know of substance about the creed other than the fact that it kind of emerges out of the, 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 the fog of history, as it were, and we uh, suddenly find churches using it, circulating it, and uh, you know, it, it definitely has some kind of substance, some kind of purchase in the early church, and yet where it comes from isn't exactly clear. Right. So as we're discussing this, we, we were reminded that we're discussing an early witness to Christian belief. And it's been for me just very encouraging to be reminded of the communion of saints. It's been uh, encouraging for me to look at something that Christians from a different culture, a different time, entirely different place than my own were proclaiming when asked, oh, Christian, what do you believe? And as I look at their testimony, and find that it's my testimony that's been just a real deep encouragement to me. And we're continuing this week now to talk about this passage, which I, I, I suspect already for many of us here on this call and this discussion is really one of those fascinating passages. It gets at so much of what biblical theology is about, and our discussion is always biblical theology heavy, given the expertise of the people on the call. So we're moving on to these two articles, and we're going to take them as one because they're so closely connected in terms of substance, but these two articles that come after the statement that on the third day he rose again from the dead, and we're going to look at the next two lines of the Apostles' Creed, he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. So this is, this is dealing with that doctrine of the ascension, and what is its importance, even here all the way back in the early church. It was something that they felt needed to be stated in terms of what they as Christians believe. So let's, let's start off with this, this idea of the ascension. What is it, and, and why is it important? It's one of the underappreciated uh, doctrines. Actually, I wasn't able to attend the last episode on the resurrection, and I, I because I was teaching a class, and I was. Uh, but I thought I told myself it's going to be okay for the New Testament guy to miss the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, because at least we get to talk about ascended and 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 Jesus's heavenly session. It's it's a, such an underappreciated doctrine, and I think it's important to state kind of up front that. If Jesus was not raised, ascended, and seated, the Christian religion doesn't work. It's actually how Hebrews 1 kind of opens up with this mysterious, um, almost paradoxical statement, but nevertheless really important one, that, that Jesus on the one hand, this is Hebrews 1, 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. So Jesus is son from all time. He is 
son from the, from, uh, you know, because of his nature, he is the very son of God. But then after making purification for sins, after his work on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he is inherited is more excellent than theirs. What name is that? You are my son. Today I've begotten you. And this then is kind of the, the key moment that makes everything that Jesus did in his earthly ministry work. He, as the eternal son, becomes the son, that is to say, the king, the messianic son, when he sits at that right hand of the father uh, as he's raised from the dead. And, and it's a powerful reminder to us that Jesus serves us not only in his humiliation, but also his exaltation. And that our walk with Christ if, is affected by and, and requires both his works. It's interesting. We were talking a couple of weeks ago about how you can't say death and not say resurrection, right? Is that, that, they're, that they, they go together. And, and, and the way you're talking about it, Tommy, almost makes me think, so we can't say death and resurrection by themselves. We have to say death, resurrection, and ascension, right? It's so crucial to the work of Christ. Yep. So, Tommy, could you uh, comment on something that students tend to ask in this regard uh, concerning the immutability of God? And so one of the questions that's asked is, so are we saying that Jesus then becomes something that he was not? And maybe this has to do with relating like ontology and then redemptive history. But do you have any comments on helping students to understand how we can maintain Jesus's immutability, but in some sense, him becoming something he was not prior to his resurrection. Yeah, I mean, I really think that that's above my pay grade. That's that's kind of a that's kind of an ST question. I, I feel like Gray needs to handle that. Us NT guys, Paul, we make the mess, and then these ST guys are supposed to come in and fix it. <laughs> yes, all, all roads lead to Gray. Gray, don't fail us now. I mean, I thought you were going to say something about the Son of God becoming the Son of God. Those texts in Romans 1, Hebrews 1, and so on. What happened to that? Come on, we can, we can yeah, yeah. hear well, that I mean, out first. You have, this, you have the same idea. Gray, you'll fix me up here in a minute. But you have the Gray. same idea in Romans in Romans 1, that uh, this the Son of God becomes the Son of God and in, in his resurrection. And you can think, okay, well, there's a contradiction there. But it's, it's not. We're talking about two different things. The Hebrew, uh, I'll ground it in the Hebrews passage. Hebrews is intentionally equivocating on the word son, and it's doing so to make a point. You can't read Hebrews and not come to appreciate the high Christology of the book. In fact, many early scholars dated it late because of the high Christology and the assumption that that couldn't have developed early. It's, it's an, I think it is an early text, and it has an incredibly high Christology, the immutability of the sun is here. He is the exact radiance of the glory of God. And yet we can switch our perspective and talk about not who Jesus is in his divine nature, but who he is as the God-man who came to earth and served his people. And when we look at that aspect of Jesus Christ, always a divine person, but a divine person with two natures, and he has an Adamic nature. You can talk about that in Hebrews too. A fully Adamic nature, which means a, a human mind, a human will, a human body, a human soul. He has a, an Adamic nature, and 
as a human being, has been appointed to a particular office, namely prophet, priest, and king, heavenly prophet, priest, and king. When does he come into the full exercise of that office? After the resurrection, when he is ascended and sits in the throne room, which is before the Father, which is, which is in the heavenly tent that the Lord pitched for our salvation. Yeah, that's exactly right. So there's there's two different categories that we have to talk about when we're talking about the incarnation, don't we? We have to talk about, on the one hand, the distinction between the divine nature of the Son, which is immutable, that remains completely unchangeable and, uh, so to speak, untouched by the progression that we see in the human nature. So Jesus Christ in his human nature developed, he lived and he suffered and he died, he resurrected and he ascended. When we're talking about those things, we're always talking about features that accrue to his human nature, not his divine nature, right? And so when we're talking about his human nature, this is the second category here that we're thinking about. We have to distinguish between Jesus Christ's appointed federal headship, that he is supposed to be the truer and better Adam, right? That on the one hand, and his distinct human nature on the other. His human nature, as we saw, can develop and change in many ways, right? But that human nature is within the context of this mission to be the truer and better Adam. And so when Jesus Christ was resurrected and when Jesus Christ ascended to heaven, that's God's stamp of approval to Jesus Christ's mission. Jesus Christ succeeded in being the truer and better Adam. Jesus Christ succeeded where Adam had failed. Jesus Christ succeeded uh, against the serpent. Jesus Christ succeeded and had victory over death because he lived a perfect and righteous and sinless life. And so when he was resurrected, that's again, God saying he's done well, that he has been approved, that he has succeeded in completing this mission, this covenant mission that he had to do. And so that shift isn't a shift of, oh, he wasn't really a son in the Adamic sense. And then he really did become a son, but rather it was a confirmation of his sonship as the Adamic son. And I think, I think it's important just to think about this, you know, on those two levels, you've got the theological level, but then you've also got this redemptive historical level, this narrative level, the story that God is telling from Adam, from first Adam to, to last Adam. We are always from the first Adam expecting the God's king to be hu a human being. That's how creation was constituted. It was constituted under an Adamic king, under Jesus Christ, well, un under Adam as the image of God and the ruler in God's stead. And when the fall happened, of course, that plan didn't change. It was it, it is going to be restored through a new Adam, a new king who must be a human being. It's I think of uh, C.S. Lewis, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia, where there's four seats in Care Paravel, and we, we need two sons of Adam and two daughters of Eve. C.S. Lewis got that from the Bible, right? The, the world is to be ruled by an Adamic king, and that king comes when Christ is born in the flesh, be, taking on true humanity, and then is raised and ascended and now sits on that throne that was always designated for him. Yeah, these suggestions of this human king through, throughout the Old Testament, you know, obviously, even Adam being called to subdue the earth, right, to have dominion over the earth is, is kingly language. And Abraham is promised in his in the initial promise of the Lord to him that kings will come out of him, right? And then in the Mosaic covenant, 
the idea of the king and the king being faithful to Torah, faithful to law and instruction of the Lord, you know, it, it pushes against this idea that Israel getting a king was somehow a concession or something, you know, to the people. You see this in Samuel, and I see this often misunderstood, this idea that, well, there wasn't supposed to be a king, but it was because of the hardness of heart of the people, whereas you actually find in the book of, of Samuel uh, it's that they want a king like the other nations, and that's not the king that the Lord has in store for them. He has a covenantally faithful king, right? Of course, and David becomes the sort of anticipation, the adumbration of that. But what, what I, when I teach Old Testament, people always think, you know, I always run into this idea with our students too, this idea, well, well, they weren't supposed to have a king. And of course, the implication of that is, or one of the implications they're not thinking through is that, well, they needed Jesus though. They needed Jesus, the human king. You know, you can't say that Jesus' office as kingship is somehow wrong or an error or a concession to the people. You know, this, this kingly office that is affirmed and encouraged and developed throughout the Old Testament is pointing us toward the messianic king, right? And, and, and what, he, what type of king he is. He's a man after God's own heart. He's, he's, he's one who loves the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, and strength. And so there's this need for the human king that is constantly being encouraged and reminded and brought up again throughout the Old Testament. And of course, in the Old Testament, they keep falling short. It keeps punting forward. When, when will the right king come? When will the Jewish boy grow up who actually loves the Lord his God in all the ways he should run the race, finish it, and receive the laurels of his patron God, right? That is, I mean, I'm thinking of Isaiah here in Isaiah nine, you know, when, when he talks about the, the king who will come, the child who will be born to us, he's identified with God, right? He's, 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 he's a Royal father. He's almighty God He's identified with the God who is his patron. And here we see that happening now in full as Jesus rises from the dead, having victory over death, as you all just, just highlighted, and now takes his place as the proper human king, in the highest position of authority that is the right hand of El Shaddai, right, in heaven. And so he's kind of, he's kind of finished that arc for us. And it's, it is such a beautiful thing, Tommy, and it is one of those doctrines that I feel like I didn't get, you know, I'm not saying it wasn't taught to me as a child, but I, I didn't absorb it as a child. I, I know enough to say things were probably taught that I didn't absorb when I was a kid, but it's not something I really absorbed until later in life, how this is kind of this arc coming to its full completion that was introduced way back in the garden. Yeah. It, there's, and there's so many implications in it and, and so much fulfillment going on there at the Bible is very rich in how it talks about it. I was thinking about this when we were doing gospels last week, you know, Luke gets at the kingship of Christ through this Adamic lens, you, you even see it in in Luke's genealogy. He goes he goes all the way back to Adam, uh, son of God, uh, Adam, son of God. Uh, so you get that kingship idea through an Adamic lens. But then in Matthew, we don't go all the way back to Adam. We go back to Abraham, and you get the same themes, but through this Israel lens. So he's mm-hmm. he's fulfillment of Israel's kingship, and of course, from Paul's perspective insofar as as he's fulfilling the role of Israel, he fulfills the role of Adam. So you get these Mm -hmm. incredibly beautiful uh, synthesis that's happening across the pages of scripture and and history. So I'm curious what you all think about this. So, you know, I think it's very common for people to ask, why is it a good thing? 
once again, right? That Jesus Christ ascended and he's no longer here on earth. Why is that a good thing for us? I think we're tempted all, all the time to think the way the disciples taught, right? Is It's better for Jesus to be with us. But then Christ responds in John 14 to 16, that it is to your benefit that I depart. How would we respond to that, especially as we're pastors, maybe to congregants or even to our students? Gray, I feel like that's a great question for Gray. <laughs> but that, that, that I want to know. A good question. I, no, I want to know what you guys say. Well, let me let, let me uh, let, let me parlay it back to you, uh, <laughs> but okay. give give a little bit of substance in the middle. Um, yeah, I think that is a great question because there are there are multiple aspects, maybe even perspectives on how it's benefit to us. Right, there's kind of this chronological teleological aspect, which is the one that Jesus gives us that he has to ascend so that he can send the, the comforter, the advocate, the paraclete, right? That, that's one of the reasons that he gives for why he has to ascend, which is actually quite kind of mechanistic, almost like functional. Like I can't go. It's like, how can they believe if they haven't heard? I can't send the paraclete unless I ascend, right? And then there's also the, there's, there's kind of this typological aspect of it, which is because of the work of the spirit, because of the work of the Holy Spirit binding us to Christ, in this sort of ontological sense, right? You know, this is not merely, merely symbolic, but in true sense of the spirit of Christ now dwelling within us, whose spirit is it? It's the risen human king, right? Sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty interceding for me. So when I turn inward to the inner man, the Galatians 2.12, no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me, it is the risen Christ who's ascended and sits at the right hand of God, the Father. Right, and that was kind of more getting at the union union with Christ doctrine. Is I mean, it, unpack that for me, though. But I wonder if that also means that uh, you know, in our union with Christ, His ascension also means, and His session at the right hand is our session at the right hand that we now co-reign with Christ in union with Christ, uh, and that e even that you know, sitting at the right hand is so you know, uh, alluding to Psalm 110 and that same imagery of the right-handed position of the son, of the Davidic son there. And I think it's a really meaningful thing to remember that the session of the son is our session uh, as well. I think all of you actually picked out really good confessional answers. In fact, when we take a look at the Heidelberg Catechism on question 49, it actually gives, a, gives us three concrete answers why Christ's ascension to heaven actually benefits us. The three Answers here is at first, he is our advocate in heaven in the presence of the Father. So there's this idea that because Christ is in heaven, he is interceding for us. He's pointing to his finished work. And even though we continue to struggle here as pilgrims on earth, and not only struggling against the world and the devil, but also against our own sins, our own flesh, he continues to point to his own finished work. And so we can have assurance in his intercession for us. And second here, the Heidelberg Catechism says a very interesting almost cryptic, but also very theological statement here. It says, second, we have our own flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that Christ, our head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. And that's an incredibly loaded statement. We have our own flesh in heaven. This refers back to the union with Christ idea that both uh, Scott and Peter just mentioned there, right? That somehow, if we are mystically united with Jesus Christ and he is the head of the church, because he is our head, there's a guarantee that the rest of his body too would emerge in heaven with him, right? There's 
a sermon that I heard before from our pastor here in Jakarta, where he said, you know, if we're drowning, as long as our head is above the water, the whole body would survive. And in his perspective, there was a wonderful picture of our union with Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is in heaven and he's the head of the church, though the body, the church is still here on earth because our head is there. We know that we would emerge to with him victorious in heaven. And that's a wonderful reminder for us. Third, here the Heidelberg Catechism says that Jesus Christ would send his spirit to us on earth as a corresponding pledge. And so that by the spirit's power, we seek not earthly things, but the things above where Christ is sitting at God's right hand. Because Christ is there ascended in heaven, his spirit is here with us, strengthening us by his power so that we can continue to look to our head and again, persevere, emerge victorious in the last day. That's great stuff. I, I, it's a reminder that Jesus not only saved us based upon what he did, but what he's doing, that he served us in his humiliation, but also in his exaltation they ministers for to us and for us now as a heavenly exalted prophet priest uh, and king and i was thinking back to your original question gray you know how is this good news because because it wouldn't be the reign and rule of god it would always be good news but it wouldn't be good news for me if jesus had obtained that rule and that reign through the bare exercise of power. It's, it's the way Jesus became king that makes it good news for me. He became king not through the power of the sword, not through, uh, not through judgment, but rather by submitting to judgment, by being born under the law, being righteous under the law, and then sacrificing himself for me, for his people under the law, he then becomes this kind of king, the kind of king that can rule and can bring justice, but do so in a manner that allows me to be a participant in it, that allows me as a sinner to come before the throne room of God. Uh, I, I love the images there, Gray. It's, it's really helpful. I love it as well. I can't help but to wonder, you know, the way that when we talk about Christ as son, you know, I keep thinking of Psalm 2, Psalm 2, verse 7. And that declaration of God to this uh, Davidic son as, uh, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The way that uh, the New Testament interprets this begottenness as, interestingly, not as eternal sonship, but but a resurrection. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he now becomes son in a way that he wasn't before. That is, perhaps, here is the eternal son, now who is now the messianic son. And for the creed to allude to this sitting at the right hand, sure sounds to me that it's alluding to Psalm 110. So here is the son who is actually seated at the right hand from Psalm 110, who is actually a priest, a, a priest king. And that really affirms, uh, Gray, what you mentioned earlier, which I, you know, I think is so fantastic, the, that eternal intercession of the son at the right hand of God on behalf of his people, not like the priestly uh, ironic priests who are temporary. This is an eternal intercession of the son who is also priest. That's the reason why he can intercede. He is not just son, he is priest. And so uh, I can't help but to wonder if the ascension is necessary because that puts him at the right hand of God the Father. But as seated at the right hand, he is not just son of God resurrected, but he is also priest interceding on our behalf. And, and all of that is sort of being bred into the creed when it says, seated at the right hand, because it's alluding to the Davidic son of Psalm 110, who was also um, 
Melchizedekian priest, which, by the way, in the book of Hebrews, I've always been curious why the son of Psalm 2 is identified with the priest of Psalm 110. Why not just refer to, you know, king of Psalm 110 with priest of Psalm 110? You know, why tie it in with the son? And it brings all of that really nicely together. Yeah, and I think my favorite aspect of the priesthood theology that we get in the book of Hebrews is the contrast between Christ who's seated on the one hand and the priests who continually stand day by day because their work is never finished. Because the priests of the old covenant, they have to atone for their own sins and they're never perfect. They never offer a perfect sacrifice because they're also offering the blood of animals that can never take away our sins. But Christ, who's our true and greater high priest, he is seated in the right hand of God and hence his priestly work is completely finished and sufficient for us. And is so perpetually, there's that, he's constantly there kind of idea. So you've got the old covenant, which says, you know, God will be with his people, but don't stay long, right? But there, there's kind of this, this distance as well, as opposed to the new covenant, where Christ is perpetually in the throne room of God. And I love that image, Gray, of the, your head, the head of the body is above water, right? Jesus is always before his father and always pleasing to his father. And therefore we have confidence to draw near always to him and find help in our time of need. I, I was actually hoping Paul could, would speak up because I remember Paul hearing a sermon on John 2 on the, the wedding feast of the lamb uh, or on, on the, the, the wedding at Cana. And you preached this just magnificent sermon about how we have uh, that all of our redemption is being with Christ in this heavenly exalted state and, and the, the party that Jesus wants to have with us, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, you strike me as somebody who's constantly preaching the relevance of the ascension to, to your people. Tommy, that sounds like an amazing sermon. I just don't remember <laughs> it <was>. preaching. <laughs> it, was. it was great. My, my wife and I, we left that sermon. We thought that is the most cheerful sermon we've ever heard. Oh, you know how I like to preach. Happiness. Tommy, what, wasn't your, uh, Tommy, wasn't your dissertation on the uh, eternal priesthood of the son in the book of Hebrews? Yeah, I'm, or, I'm an expert on Hebrews 8 to B. That's a half verse more than I'm an expert on. <laughs> yeah, him sitting in the heavenly tabernacle. What does that mean, Tommy? That he sat in the heavenly tabernacle? Yeah, what does that mean? Why is that, why is Summarized that such a significant of a line? The title of my uh, dissertation was Heaven is a Tent. So it means that Jesus dwells with us in our wilderness wandering perpetually and constantly because the heavenly he serves in the heavenly tent, which has been pitched among us. Amen to that. <laughs> that's it. I wrote 400 pages about that, but that, that's it. That's all there is. That's, that's, how a, that's how a biblical PhD is, though, right? I mean, you spend eight years of your life. You struggle, sweat, and, and, and bleed over this thing, and you end up, and someone says, so what'd you write on? You basically say it in a sentence, and you wonder, how could I be so mundane? But you're not. Did you say 400 pages? Yeah, in the U.S., we write long dissertations. Wow. <laughs> That's a really long dissertation. <laughs> Did you it. mean long or real dissertations? I wasn't sure. <laughs> <laughs> the real dissertation is the real dissertation. 
Well, can, let me connect to the idea of the tip, okay? And then the uh, again, kind of we've we've talked about the kingly office of Christ and His ascension. We've talked about the priestly office of Christ and His ascension, and of course that raises the question for our listeners: Well, what about that other office of uh, of prophet? And of course, you know, the Old Testament, this tent, okay, the 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 heavenly palace of the Lord. The royal edifice where he gathers together is referred to in a variety of ways. Um, you know, the heavens are his throne, the earth is footstool. It's it's also called the sod, which is the you know the that's in Hebrew for this idea of council or assembly. And he's gathered the heavenlies together, the bini Elohim, the angels, the sons of the sons of God, as it were. And he gathers together for consultation and for discussion about the events of the world below. And, and one of the things that uh, happens in the assembly is that the prophets ascend there. You talked earlier about that distance between the heavenly throne room and the earthly throne room. And for the prophet, the, the, there's, this, there's a real sense in which the prophetic job is becoming an emissary of that heavenly throne room to the earthly realm, right? Jeremiah even goes so far as to say, if you're a true prophet, it's because you've been to the heavenly assembly. He actually points this out in uh, Jeremiah 23, 20 through 22, where he's talking about these false prophets. And he says, this is in the voice of the Lord. I did not send these prophets yet. They have run with their message. I did not speak to them yet. They have prophesied, but if they had stood in my sowed, right? If they'd stood in my counsel, they would have proclaimed my words to my people and turned men back from their evil ways and deeds. This is idea that in the old Testament, in order to know what's happening in the heavenly throne room, we have to have our representative there. Now, not in a priestly sense, but one who receives the word of the Lord and sometimes interceding too, but when he receives the word of the Lord, he then brings it to us. And I think there's some rich imagery there that now we no longer wait for a prophet from the sowed because we have our prophet there at all times, right? And we have his spirit within us. So there's this fundamental shift that I think actually author of Hebrews gets at too, right? He's like, before it was prophets ascending and descending to the heavenly assembly, but now we have, right, the son of God. We have our Lord in the assembly. And there's this idea that he's even fulfilled that office as well in his place in the Royal assembly. Not only is he King, not only is he priest, but he's also prophet. He's, he's emissary of the King. That's great. I really like that. It's a subtler theme in Hebrews, but it's, it's there and it's threaded throughout the discourse. In fact, one of the interesting things about Hebrews is the way it talks about scripture, the way it cites scripture, you know, normally in the new Testament, you have stuff like, thus was fulfilled the word of the prophet or uh, the favorite kind of introduction to quoting scripture, something like it, it is written. And in Hebrews, by contrast, it's always spoken. It's always present tense. Thus the Holy spirit says, Mm. or, you know, something like that. And so it's always a a present tense moment of speaking of the old Testament as if this is for you. Now, this is what the scriptures are telling you now. In, in God's very own voice. Mm. Go ahead, Paul. Uh, I, no, like, I was thinking about Gray's original uh, question uh, regarding why Jesus says it is better. And just something I was thinking about as an aside, but I didn't raise it because I wasn't sure how orthodox it was. But, you know, obviously the outpouring of the Spirit follows Jesus' ascension. And so 
Now, I do wonder in part if Jesus was conveying that it's really better for you to experience the kind of indwelling of the spirit that we see in Jesus's own ministry. And so that's what I was just sitting on, like where Jesus does want us to genuinely experience what um, is true for him, you know? And so while the disciples were in one sense sad or reluctant about Jesus's ascension, um, it's because they, you know, it's interesting when you read the Acts narrative, after they experience the outpouring of the spirit, they're not, they seem to understand better why Jesus said it is, uh, you know, better for me to depart. So I, I was just thinking, I was just thinking about that, but I had not really thought through that um, fully. And so hence my reticence, didn't want to be recorded for my heresy. <laughs> no, but I think there is something there where Jesus wants us to genuinely experience um, something that is true for him. That is the like rich outpouring of the spirit. You get this language of the peace that passes all understanding. And I think there has to be an emotional experiential element to this, right? This is a, this is a transcendent peace that is in some ways. Yeah. Um, super cognitive, right. Or mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think that's heresy. Hopefully not. Should we land the plane? I, I, I like our current conclusion, the faculty podcast, not heretical. Yeah. <laughs> well, brothers, I always benefit from having these conversations with you. And thank you for unpacking the article of the Ascension. What is it? We talked a lot about the descension. And what does that mean? The, the descent into hell, the rising on the third day, and now the, the glorious end in many ways to um, Christ's work. Uh, drawing our attention now to the heavens and drawing our attention, of course, to what we're going to talk about next, which is that eschatological um, reality of the age to come uh, and, and the new heavens and the new earth. And so we'll come back to that in the next installment. And until then, take care. Yeah, I think all of you. Oh, go ahead, Tommy. Um, no, if you. Well, I have one thing to say about that, but if you want to. No, no, go for it. Go for it. Well, I don't know what it's going to say anymore. <laughs> and that's uh, Vince, you know. I hate it when that happens. It was that good. It, I, it. I think I got it. Okay, go for it. I just don't know how to get there from what Peter said. I should have just kept my mouth shut. Okay, I'll get I'll I'll come back to it later. Go go gray. Well,